Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Today, there are 50 million kids in the U.S. school system who spend less time outdoors than any other generation before them. And when children are let out for recess, it's most often on expanses of asphalt, barren wastelands with no shade or greenery. In today's episode, we learn about the huge mental, physical, and emotional health benefits children receive by being exposed to nature during their school days. We visit with two schools that are part of the growing green schoolyard movement. Pulling up asphalt and replacing it with living schoolyards represents a quantum leap in the way we treat children in this country, and as a result, it will impact how these children treat the world around them. Let's start by talking with Richard Louvre, who is the best-selling author of The Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from the Nature Deficit Disorder. This book caused huge waves when it was first published in 2005, and Last Child in the Woods continues today as a catalyst to reconnect our children with nature. Richard has written two follow-up books called The Nature Principle and Vitamin N and is the founder of the Children and Nature Network. I started by asking Richard why 40% of American schools have either eliminated or are considering eliminating recess. The canceling of recess makes no sense at all. I mean, kids that are hyperactive are punished by taking recess away from them. You know, if kids are bouncing off the walls, the problem may not be the kids, it may be the walls. And our schools just look like prison yards. Well, actually, in California, as you probably know, many of the newest schools were not only designed but built by the same people who build prisons in California. I didn't realize that. That's terrifying. That the more high-tech our lives become, the more nature we need. It's a it's an equation. It's a question of budgeting of time and money. And I, I think in schools, for every dollar that's spent on the virtual, we ought to spend at least another dollar on the real, particularly if it's natural. It's a, a question of balance. Uh, schools of the future that New Yorker wrote about a, a couple of years ago is a school in Brooklyn. It's an elementary school. It's upstairs. There's no place to play, no nature at all, no playground. And the kids are on those iPads and computers and other electronic gadgets all day. Not only that, there are fisheye cameras in all of the walls watching these kids. And the good news, they say, is that testing as we know it will go away. The weird news is that we won't need testing because the machines will be watching our kids all the time. I, I don't know about you, but I find that. <laughs> yeah, it's Orwellian. I mean, and, it's the only way to describe that. So the, the, the move for balance, the lobby for balance has to come from a social movement. The movement to reconnect people to nature is a, a big part of that. Tell us about your views on the importance of schools and education in in helping kids understand the, the cycle of life. Not that many years ago, some environmental educators, believe it or not, uh, did, did not respond well to the idea that maybe we ought to be taking kids outdoors. They didn't see that as part of environmental education. One of the things I'd like to see a lot more of is schools and libraries uh, becoming centers of bio, bioregional uh, knowledge and awareness. 
to focus at least some of the science that they learn in school on their own bioregion. In San Diego, for instance, where I live, the more you're aware of where you are, the more you value where you are, and the more you probably are going to try to protect the nature of where you are. And it also, importantly, gives kids and adults a sense of psychological grounding. Uh, this is good for us to know where we come from. One of the the, the most startling headlines to come out of, of your research and, and your writing, Richard, was the relationship between ADHD and the fact that it's aggravated by a lack of exposure to nature. Today, um, if you go to the Children in Nature Network, which is a nonprofit that grew out of Last Child in the Woods, you'll see abstracts for over 700 studies. And they all seem to point in the same direction, which is uh, being outdoors is good for physical health, mental health, um, and cognitive functioning. When you talk to families and and kids in particular about what they want their schools to look like, what do you what do you hear? There is a counter movement in naturalizing the schoolyards and getting kids outdoors to learn more, but that's still a minority movement, a small movement within education. But what I hear from teachers is that parents are the biggest problem. The parents don't want the kids to get dirty. The parents uh, put pressure on the schools to get more computers, even though parents know, apparently know about the health benefits of, uh, of nature to their kids, um, apparently to get their kids ready to be uh, corporate employees. But what you've helped people do is, is discover that a sense of place, a sense of belonging, a sense of wonderment in, in nature is something that can help them transcend people's daily lives. One of the things I didn't understand when I wrote Last Child was um, that it didn't matter what somebody's religion or uh, politics were. Uh, they all wanted to tell me about the treehouse they had when they were kids, that special place in nature that's still in their hearts, that they still go to, even if the bulldozers finally came. And Everybody wants to tell those stories. And when you open the conversation with that, with people remembering these special places in nature and reminding them that that is not guaranteed for future generations to have that place in their heart to go to, you open the conversation and we begin to talk about all kinds of issues like the urban design, like school design, schoolyards, uh, healthcare. When you look at the future, through the prism of nature, like, for instance, what would our cities be like if, if they were designed to connect people to nature, to connect children and adults? Some cities are already doing that, but what if we did that every, even more? So our lives were as immersed in nature every day as they are in technology. Um, uh, I think that's a, it's a very different future we see. One of the things I really like about your book is that it presents a positive vision of the future. I, I talk often about what I call the the um, the dystopian trance, which is this depression culturally that we're in, and this precedes uh, the 2016 election. Uh, I become convinced if you ask most Americans to describe uh, uh, the far future, what images come to their mind immediately? Those images look a lot like Blade Runner and Mad Max, and um, I think we were trapped in that dystopian trance and we need to begin to see, literally see in our mind's eye, a different future filled with beauty. 
And I think nature is a central way to imagine that future. Martin Luther King said that any movement, any culture will fail if it cannot paint a picture of a world we'll want to go to. I think we have to paint that picture and we have to do it with the, the pigments of nature. And to the extent that kids don't connect to nature, there may not be an environmental movement in the in the future. That sense of, of joy that comes from being outdoors in the woods or lying on a field watching the, the clouds move, that's, that's the ultimate um, power underlining, un- underlying the environmental movement. And we're in danger of losing that. And in the future, they may carry nature in their briefcases and not in their hearts. That's a very different relationship. We have to inspire young people. We, we have to help them see a different future that they want to get up tomorrow morning and create nature-rich schools, nature-rich neighborhoods, nature-rich cities, a nature-rich future. If you use phrases like that, suddenly you can kind of see that future. In order to understand how we turn the idea of nature-rich schools into a reality, I meet up with Sharon Dangs, who spent 15 years as a landscape architect helping schools convert asphalt play yards into living classrooms. She then founded and now runs Green Schoolyards America as a way to bring this vision to scale. Sharon is the author of Asphalt to Ecosystems, Design Ideas for Schoolyard Transformation. So, Sharon, how come schoolyards look the way they do? They were largely designed in the 1940s, um, looking to train Um, soldiers for the battlefield and prepare factory workers for uh, their repetitive work in factories. And uh, that's not exactly what we're trying to do with our education right now. What is the kind of history of this idea of outdoor environmental education Mm -hmm. within the school? California is a world leader in school garden development and use and curriculum that connects the outdoors and the inside, frequently cooking classes connecting to garden and now science classes using the plant growth that you see outside. To me, living schoolyards are very uh, interdisciplinary ideas. They're looking for social emotional engagement and looking to have the therapeutic benefits of landscape. And so they might put in a small patch of forest in a garden to help kids who've had a lot of trauma in their lives have a place to recharge and de-stress. Um, there's research out there that connects stress levels, having trees to lower stress levels and higher test scores. So health is one area and gardens kind of fit into that health framework. But then there's also environmental rationales. So what does a healthy schoolyard look like? I think a healthy schoolyard is one that feels more like a park. It's one that has choices of microclimate so you can uh, be comfortable on a hot day or a cool day. It's a place that allows children and families on the weekend to be active Um, It has places for social interaction and collaboration and cooperation. So activities like a giant sandbox that invites 30 kids to build a collaborative sand castle or a sand city with with rivers running through it are ways for children to be interacting in positive ways without an adult directing their conversations. And then also on the nutrition end of health, you have the gardens and garden education and learning to eat healthy and grow your own food. I mean, it sounds idyllic, like... Who wouldn't want a green schoolyard? Um, I certainly, everyone that I've been to feels like an inviting environment that I would want to spend time. And as you said, a park um, Mm. is certainly more inviting than a prison. Um, How much time do our kids get to spend outside? 
not enough. Not en- that kids don't spend enough time outside. Half of the kids in the United States get less than an hour outside every day, and they compared that to the requirement for prisoners who who are mandated two hours outside every day. And um, it's crazy that that's the yeah, case. Yeah, so our kids get half the amount of time on average than prisoners are mandated to be outside. That's often the case, unfortunately. There are places in the world where kids are getting time outside. Norway was, um, until the 1960s, restricted indoor education. That's awesome. So, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's kind of the way you'd want it to be. Exactly. And they also have standards for what you need to know, to know at each grade level in Norway to do to gain competencies outdoors. Maybe give us a sense of the scale of the schoolyard challenge in a state like California. California has 130,000 acres of public school land, and every day, 6.2 million K-12 kids are on that land. And if you were to think about those children as park visitors and our public land as potential parks to visit, um, that's a lot of daily users. In fact, that's more users in a day than our national park, Yosemite, has in a year. So in a single day... In a single day, 6.2 million kids are on our school grounds and only 5 million are at Yosemite in a year. Wow. That's so, incredible. It seems like a huge opportunity. I think these are plots of land in the center of every neighborhood. Um, and if we wanted to connect every child to nature every day in a very democratic and egalitarian way, we would put the nature where the kids already are in their neighborhood on the school ground land. Given that we've got this sea of asphalt, like what is your vision of what what would it look like in an idealized world? Well, I think if we made every school ground a green schoolyard, we could have positive impact on children, the environment, and public land. Um, And for children, we'd be able to give every child access to nature every day in the places where they already spend time. So tell us a little bit about the benefits of having a It's a green classroom as well as a schoolyard. We asked teachers, what what are you already teaching that you'd like to be able to teach outside, across the curriculum, across the grade level? So this is not about adding to the plates of teachers who are already busy. It's about making their teaching easier, more interesting, more engaging for them and for the kids. Piloting a curriculum now that's uh, related to measuring surface temperatures of playgrounds. How hot is the asphalt compared to the grass? How hot is it in the sun versus the shade and all different materials? And so they might, for example, see that it's 90 degrees cooler on the live grass under a tree than it is on the rubber uh, safety surface, which is reading 165 as they can. (laughs) And so, which is eye popping. And so having children be the scientists who go about that process during their science class, but also the um, coming coming to democratic consensus with that scientific information about action that should be taken and then making recommendations to their school community about how do you retrofit that site to plant a tree in the right place to shade that hot spot and cool it. So we want to help kids be solution finders or change makers for their environment. We ask the kids also of course, what they would like to be doing outside and getting kids to to draw pictures of their ideas and annotate them. They're not consulted often enough. So we try to amplify their voice in the planning process. We want every child to have access to nature every day. It is for their enjoyment of life, but it's also 
has ramifications for test scores and mental health and physical health. A lot of schools in different places around the world have been experimenting with longer and longer recesses and finding that that the attention kids pay to their schoolwork when they come back in to do work is increased. And so that more recess equals better academic achievement. What is the one ingredient that should be included in every school project? All spaces for children should be designed with happiness as the first priority. Um, and, and I think that we don't do that often enough in the U.S. So I'd like to see places of happiness with great ecological health and, uh, and children's health and well-being. And now word from our sponsor, Design Crowd. Marvel Comics have been made into 19 movies, and there are 13 more in production. Together, they've grossed over $16 billion, bringing in more loot than any other movie franchise ever. The creative genius behind Marvel Comics and the co-creator of Spider-Man, The Hulk, Doctor Strange, The Black Panther, The X-Men, and Iron Man is the American comic book writer Stan Lee. Here's Stan talking about his inspiration for Iron Man. Hi, this is Stan Lee, and whether you like it or not, we're going to talk about Iron Man. You know, the thing about Iron Man is, I really almost created him on a dare. I like that Stan Lee made a hero out of someone no one else liked. It's kind of similar to Podge Your Birth. I mean, who likes climate change, water pollution, or trash? Just like Marvel Comics, the character piloting Podship Earth needed to get some superhero qualities. And just like in the comics, our superhero needed a poster. Then I looked up Kent. No, not Clark Kent, but Kent Tobel from Design Crowd, who had won the design competition to create the Podship Earth logo. Design Crowd is a website that helps you crowdsource custom logos, business cards, and web designs from artists around the world. What I love the most is that you can collaborate with the winning designer to create a design that's kick-ass and is true to your vision. Plus, just like a real superhero, by using Design Crowd, you can help rid the world of bad designs. I couldn't be happy with the final poster. Going on Design Crowd was easy and it gave me the time I needed to save the world one podcast at a time. Check out designcrowd.com podship to save up to $100 when you start your next project. That's designcrowd.com slash podship, or simply enter the discount code podship when posting a project on Design Crowd. I can guarantee that weaving a web of good design will bring out the superhero in you. Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, welcome fame, he's ignored, action is his reward to him, life is a great big Now back to our episode on greening schoolyards. I traveled to West Oakland to Hoover Elementary School to talk with Miss Wanda Stewart, who is a force for nature. I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what you've been told. Farming is good for your soul. Farming is good for your soul. Put your hands into the soil. Put your hands into the soil. Miss Wanda, tell us where we are. So you are at the Hoover Hawks Victory Garden in West Oakland, California. And what are we looking at? We're looking at um, a school and community garden that is 75 foot square. Um, 
and cultivated by elementary school students. Um, and it's full of food and fruits and vegetables and spaces to be in nature. And tell us about the view that we get from the garden. Ooh, the view from our garden is a large expanse of blacktop, lots and lots of blacktop that um, has been measured as hot as 120 degrees on the right day. We've got about 350 kids or so who come to school here every day. What is your role, Miss Wanda? I am, I call myself the garden life teacher. We grow food and we learn about nature and we do a little bit of cooking. We just hang out in the fresh air and observe bugs. It's amazing how many times kids will be thrilled by roly-polies. Mahedi, you come out here to water the garden and take care of the garden even when you don't have to. When you could be playing on the play structure, you come and take care of the garden. How come you do that? Um, because I'm a good garden tender. Uh-huh. What makes a good garden tender? Uh, helping the plants grow. Bees fly around and they collect pollen uh -huh. from, from flower to flower. Uh-huh. There you go. And does that help our food grow? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. One of the things that I want to do with this garden and, and with any garden is it's a wonderful way to bring people together across language, across culture, across generation, across gender, across almost anything, to have some shared goals around growing food. One of the things that we do are grow the crops that people would want to have. We have a lot of folks from Yemen, a lot of folks, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and um, so we grow the stuff that they would like to have. And increasingly, um, they'll come out and help us grow the stuff they would like to have, right? So we like grow all the food out here, the kids and I, and then we'll harvest it and we take it out into the center of the courtyard and we give it away. But when we're giving away the stuff that people love, so like for the black folks, I got collard greens, right? For our Latino families, it's mm, lots of things, tomatoes, um, peppers, and, there was a time that I would have said chayotes, but our entire school loves chayotes, right? Sometimes there's tension between the black kids and the Latino kids, particularly. And this one day I said, you know what, we need to teach y'all how to get along, like collard greens and chayote. And we made some, literally, in my classroom. And it was the best pot of collard greens I've ever had. And it was the sweet of the chayote and the bitter of the collard greens, and it was a nice blend, and everybody loved it. And everybody also knows what I mean when I say get along like collard greens and chayotes, right? I tell them, if I can teach you how to grow a seed, I can also at the same time teach you how to grow yourself, right? And if we can grow a garden out here, we can grow a community at the same time. So learning how to think first, learning impulse control, right? Learning how to care for one another. Those are all things that we do at the same time. I'm the first to say you got to be a pretty tough plant <laughs> to make it in the Hoover School Garden. Um, and, and yet they're doing amazingly, yet, the plants. Look, look at all the plants we have, right? And the reality is that um, our kids at this school are hungry and I've been working in schools for 30 years these kids are hungrier than I'm used to seeing and 
so I also tell them that they will always be able to have food when they know how to grow their own, that they will always be able to feed their own children um, because they know how to do it, right? Yeah, you got an issue? Are you looking for me? Oh, cool. You are welcome to walk around and, and do whatever. So come to the garden and calm down is getting to be a new thing. Um, and our teachers, because mostly it's been me out here with the kids and, the, and a couple of volunteers, but now teachers are learning, oh, wait, you go out there and just chill and go pick some food and, you know, just go center down. So um, it's becoming a nice place for that. It's a nice retreat for kids who, you know, when you're living in the hood and it's pretty rough out there on the playground um, and you're not that kind of kid, you know, you're more a softer soul to be able to come and sit up underneath the elderberry or up underneath the grandfather redwood and just chill out for 15 minutes during recess instead of needing to keep that intense pace of what it takes to be here um, is a really, really good thing. You got a red strawberry? That's a lucky day. Now that's the reason to calm down. I think I can see a way to do it that really impacts community and really impacts um, the way people look at their food and how they take care of their bodies. And so why do you all like coming out here? Like, you could be down there on the play structure, you could be hanging on the blacktop. How come you guys come out here? Because it's peaceful here and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Because um, you feel more comfortable in the garden. Because mm -hmm. um, you'll like to see how the um, vegetables grow. True. Because the nature surrounds you. Mm -hmm. Are we excited about the chickens? Why do we want the chickens? Oh. I want chickens because I have actually never seen baby chicks in real life before. Poo, y'all. Poo. We want it for the poo. That's my choice. <laughs> Do you have ambitions over the rest of the blacktop? <laughs> yes. Our blacktop needs to go. It is. It hurts kids. It is really hot. Um, it's almost unconscionable for us to let the kids come out here and even play on certain days. Those days where we get those weird 90 degree days that the bay never gets. Um, they shouldn't be out there on it. I, for as versed as I was around um, climate change and global warming, but it wasn't until I came to Hoover and I stepped out on our yard on the 90 plus degree day that I really understand why global warming was a harder thing in the hood, right? I like really had to experience it to get it. So, I, the there's, there's not a lot of shade. There's no shade anywhere. You know, our schoolyard is five, six times the size of our garden, and it's massive. And it could be beautiful. And we could be feeding people. And we could have kids running on dirt and wood chips instead of hard black asphalt. And is, is that vision going to be able to be turned into reality? I think anybody, anything can be turned into a reality, right? If you just start visioning it. Um, I was visioning for myself a school garden to grow somewhere and a place to put programs uh, to teach people. Because just because it's a garden doesn't mean you can't do yoga. Doesn't mean you can't do cooking and art. 
right? So now Hoover has in a garden this amazing stage to present untold things to the world. So to have more of that, I think would be wonderful. To be able to let the little kids run in the grass and take their shoes off and play with worms and roly-polies, that's making the world a better place. One roly-poly at a time. I love that. We're working on integrating the garden with what goes on in the cafeteria with what goes on in the classroom, right? And I've done a little bit of that, but now everyone's beginning to see the possibilities. It so happened that the Planet B folks were here to teach about bees today. Well, that was perfect because they've been doing insects in class and doing the life cycle, right? So they got to see it. I wish I could tell you we'd planned it to work that way, right? We didn't. So we're learning to do those kinds of things more. What's your name? Julian. I say Ulian. Julian. Yep. Do you like the garden? Play around and make secret stuff and like play around like with my friends. They are acting and working creatively, right? And applying the stuff that they do in the world and in their classrooms, in the garden. It's a pretty joyous thing to watch them grow. After getting inspired by Miss Wanda, I went to talk with Maria Weiss at Rooftop Public Schools in San Francisco. Maria's the school's garden coordinator. Just like at Hoover Elementary, Rooftop still has a lot of asphalt in their play yard. I asked Maria if the kids feel protective over their garden. I had a second grade class in here last Friday, and um, we noticed that there were some contractors were going to be having some work done to the school this summer, there are some trees that are in declining health and might pose a conflict with the construction. And, and I said, well, we're going to be taking these four trees out. <laughs> and then the kids started chanting, keep the trees, keep the trees, keep the trees. That is such a great story. I walked from the garden to meet with Cynthia Vaughan's class of first graders. On our way, I asked Miss Vaughan why she thinks greening the schoolyards is so important. A, a sense of place, I think, for the kids creates a relationship with whatever place you're trying to bring uh, the experience you want to bring to them. The kids really got a sense of the power of nature right in their backyard. And you build a community in your school, in your classroom. Our garden is an amazing gift that we have right here at Rooftop. And the kids are taking care of plants in there. They are um, growing things. But you build these relationships at a young age so that they have a different sense of caring for it um, as they uh, grow. Next, I sit down in Miss Vaughan's class of first graders who are discussing a plan for including more green space at their school. <laughs> My name is Iris, and green space is land where there's no buildings. And why is it important to have land with no buildings? Because, because animals can live there. The rooftop garden is special because uh, a leprechaun lives in the rooftop garden, I think. Do leprechauns like fresh air? Yeah. Water too. They need water to drink. And does the water have to be clean? Yeah. Do you wish you had more recess? Yeah. yeah. But what if what if the whole 
recess playground was nature. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Why would that be good? So the people who said, put your hand up if you didn't like recess. Because I like being in nature instead of cooped up on that enormous yard. Who likes recess the most? Because you can run around and get all the th silly feelings out. Is Miss Vaughn the best teacher ever? Yeah! <laughs> I had such a great time with these six and seven-year-olds. I left the school feeling like anything is possible. Thanks to Richard Louvre, Sharon Danks, Wanda Stewart, the children of Hoover Elementary School, Maria Weiss, Cynthia Vaughan, and the kids at Rooftop School for opening my eyes to the huge benefits of connecting children with nature at school. What I took away from today's episode is that creating living schoolyards is one of the single most important actions we can take today to help our children become healthier, happier, and get better grades. As Richard Louvre explained, children, like all of us, need to experience nature in order to feel a connection to the planet we live on. By digging up the thousands of square miles of asphalt that cover schoolyards across the country and replacing them with living, resilient, park-like green schoolyards, we can grow food, help stormwater recharge our aquifers, reduce urban heat island impacts, and help integrate the nature on our doorstep into the way our children learn about everything from math to cooking. By increasing the amount of time our children spend outside experiencing their living classrooms, we will end the shameful practice of treating the youngest and most sensitive members of our society like occupants of a prison. By recognizing that children need nature to succeed, we will be taking a big step towards healing the planet. In order to take action in your community, email your local school district or neighborhood school principal and ask what you can do to help. Maybe you have a green thumb and can help teach kids how to grow zucchini. Or maybe your sister has a pickup truck and you can use it to bring mulch to your school. Or maybe you want to help plant a maple tree in memory of a loved one. There are literally endless ways you can help green your local school. And I can tell you from this week's episode, it is so much fun. In next week's episode, we examine the swirling mass of plastic twice the size of Texas floating in the Pacific. If you have time, please review the show on Apple's Podship Earth page. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have an excellent week. Music.